0: Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay, he lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight. Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. America was in a Cold War. So were we, except not with the Russians. Ours was with the Army. Example. One of the traditions at Wallace Barracks that preceded me and continued while I was there, and I'm sure after I left, was on the eve of the Army-Navy football game, we draftees would parade around the EM club with a huge wooden anchor, singing Anchors Away and chanting, Go Navy, Beat Army. The regular Army guys hated this. Another example. One of our guys, John, was a talented cartoonist and worked in an area that created posters and flyers that were meant to underline some rule or regulation. Like, say they wanted to caution us about German road safety when we were out on the economy, as anything that took place away from our post was called. John would draw a cartoon of a car driven by a GI, and like Al Hirschfeld in his Nina's, John would have FTA somewhere in his drawing. It was his and our private little joke. FTA stood for Fuck the Army. There was an article in Stars and Stripes, the military newspaper, about an investigation into FTA at some army post stateside. The regular army guys thought it might be a communist plot. Of course, the investigation didn't go anywhere. The whole thing was just a prank, not an international movement. If one of our guys decided to marry a foreign national, he was automatically stripped of his security clearance and put to work at the headquarters company, which I'll get to in a minute. This happened to a guy from Wisconsin. He had about a month to go until he rotated back to the States with his German bride. One of his jobs was to mow the grass on the large oval in the center of our compound. He mowed FTA in huge letters and left the rest of the grass as it was. There were other ways that we engaged in our little Cold War, but first let me tell you about Headquarters Company. We served two masters, as it were, at Wallace Barracks. There was the CIC headquarters, where all the Fort Holabird grads worked. It was commanded by a bird colonel, Jeff Clay III. And then there was a headquarters company, where everyone at Wallace Barracks was billeted, and that included the laundry, mess hall, motor pool, and other service areas that supported us. It was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Matthias Hummel. A guy from Queens named McTaggart, who worked in the motor pool, decided to steal a Jeep and go for a joyride. He got caught, of course, and was court-martialed by the headquarters company. Two of our guys defended him. Bob Richards, a member of the Massachusetts Bar, and Stan Rothenberg, even at that time one of the foremost copyright authorities in the world. He'd written books about it. Bob was the face, Stan did the research. They got McTaggart off on some kind of technicality. Another petty crime like that happened again. The charges were as much a part of our Cold War as they were serious infractions. The regular army guys wanted to harass us and show us who was boss at headquarters company. But again, Bob and Stan got this guy off. After that, as long as Bob and Stan were still at Wallace Barracks, no petty charges were brought against any enlisted men. After they left, somebody did something, and a court-martial was convened, but two of our other guys picked up where Bob and Stan left off. While I'm thinking about Stan Rothenberg, I might as well tell this story. He was one of the few guys from those days that I stayed in touch with after the Army. He helped me with copyrights when I got to New York, and we kept in touch. My roommate... Okay, this is another quick story. When I got to Wallace Barracks and was looking for a place to bunk, Mickey and I found this little room inside a larger room. The larger room had about ten beds in it. This little room was empty and had two beds in it, which Mickey and I claimed. Whenever they had inspections, which the sergeants at headquarters company insisted on from time to time, we thought mostly to harass us, we'd shut our door. The guys in the outer room never told the sergeants what was behind the door, so Mickey and I just stood there by our foot lockers until the inspection was over. Okay, now back to Stan. I hounded Mickey to take me to a Jewish service. He was a very Reformed Jew and agreed to take me to the only service that he had any attachment to, Yom Kippur. So we go to the chapel and Stan Rothenberg is there. He comes up to me, not Mickey, me, and starts giving me shit about only showing up for the services once a year. I'm not Jewish. We had a lot of laughs about that one over the years. There was another time in New York when I got an idea for what we ended up calling the birthday book. When I worked at NBC, Ron Agan and I discovered that we had the same birthday. What happened was this. Someone wished me a happy birthday out loud. Ron came out of his office. How'd you know it was my birthday? Whoever wished me a happy birthday said I was talking to Chris. Then Ron's secretary said, today's my father's birthday. And believe it or not, a woman in the research department, which was adjacent to our offices, popped her head in the door and said it was her birthday too. Anyway, after we were both away from NBC, I contacted Ron about this idea for the birthday book. This was way before you could Google anything about any date and get an instant response. Ron thought it was a good idea, and so we decided to use our birthday, June 8th, for the prototype. I did weeks of research at the New York Public Library and compiled a list of interesting and diverse facts about that data in history. Ron gave them to Herb Blue Ballin, who designed and laid out a prototype, and I suggested we take it to Stan Rothenberg to see about copywriting it. We walk into Stan's office, and I toss the birthday book on his desk. He picks it up and says, How did you know June 8th was my birthday? Okay, back to Wallace Barracks. The section I worked in was called the Management Engineering Division. If you wonder what that means, you're not alone. I still don't know what it means. It had absolutely nothing to do with counterintelligence. My personal conclusion that it was a bullshit job created by the Army to waste my fucking time. There were three enlisted men and a major in our office. Channing Livingston Hadley was the major. When I interviewed with him before he selected me for my imaginary job, I read him as a phony from the get-go. He looked good, but he didn't take long to realize he was full of shit. One of the other guys, Joe, had gone to Fordham and was from Queens. The third, Larry, was both from and went to college in Cincinnati. Major Hadley and I were oil and water from the first day. He must have sensed that I saw right through him. It turns out that he had a battlefield commission. His permanent army grade was some kind of sergeant. That was the case with quite a few officers in the army at that time. While I was still in Stuttgart, the army began a program called Reduction in Forces, RAF, RIF. And the major who headed the controller's office next door to ours went from being a major one day to a staff sergeant the next. Major Hadley became Sergeant Hadley after I left. Anyway, once a month, each section put someone up for the headquarters company, Soldier of the Month. Hadley had already sent Joe and Larry a couple of times without success. He must have felt obliged to put me up. The result? I have a photo of Colonel Hummel handing my PFC self a three-day pass and a check for 15 bucks. I won. The closest I ever came to the actual Cold War was one morning when Hadley put me up for a special detail. Eight of us from different sections were ushered into this small room, and the executive officer of the CIC headquarters came in. This is ultra-top-secret, he said. You men have been selected to guard a Russian officer that we captured in Berlin. He's being debriefed at various CIC detachments. He's already been to Nuremberg and Munich, and he's on his way here. This will be the only job you have for as long as he's here. You'll guard him at all times. You'll have to requalify with a forty five caliber submachine gun and the thirty eight. If he tries to escape, you might have to shoot him. If anyone tries to free him, you might have to shoot them. Once you're in this detail, you'll be in it for the duration of his time here. You are not to discuss this with anyone else. This is ultra top secret. If there's any reason you can't do it, say so now. Remember, you are not to talk about this with anyone. He dismissed us. The other seven guys got up and walked out of the room. I sat there. The exec looked at me. What is it, Private? I think you better take me off this detail, sir. What? Why? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't want to shoot anybody. What? He couldn't believe it. This is the last thing he expected to hear from a soldier. You said if there's any reason we can't do it, say so now. I'm saying so. He just looked at me. He was flabbergasted. Finally, he dismissed me, and I went back to the management engineering division. After chow, I was summoned up to Jeff Clay 3's office. No one ever went to Jeff Clay 3's office. The rumor was that he arrived in the morning, went into his office, drank all day, and then left. I didn't know anyone who had ever even spoken to Jeff Clay three, And here I was, summoned to his office. It was like being summoned to the principal's office. His secretary sent me in. I halted two paces from his desk, stood at attention, and saluted. He flicked a salute back at me. What's this I hear about you not wanting to kill any Ruskies? That's right, Colonel. Well, I'm going to tell you something, son. You're going to get a chance to kill all the fucking Ruskies you want to one of these days. I said, well, if it's all the same to you, sir, I'll wait till then. He just looked at me, the way the exec had, flabbergasted. Finally, he said, all right, you're dismissed. I saluted, snapped an about-face, and marched out of his inner sanctum. After the Russian officer had arrived, whenever I'd see any of the other seven guys, I would invariably get a dirty look. My job in the Management Engineering Division consisted of one thing. I was required to teach a class to non-commissioned officers on efficiency. This is the Counterintelligence Corps, remember. A course on efficiency. There was an Army manual that was my teaching guide. It was the dumbest crap I'd ever seen. The theory was that I'd teach these sergeants from the motor pool and the mess hall and wherever how to do their jobs better. What the fuck do I know about the motor pool? It was like we were playing a game. You pretend to bake a potato more efficiently or change a tire on a jeep with fewer movements and I'll give you a passing grade that goes into your permanent record as an achievement. Fucking stupid. Oh yeah, It's a good thing I went to Fort Holabird for intelligence training. The way you're up for promotion in the Army was based on how much time you'd served. It's called time in grade. After so many months, you become a Private E2. Then after so many more months, you become a Private First Class, PFC. Next, you're eligible to become a Corporal or Spec 3. You rarely get past that if you're only in the Army for two years. Each of these promotions gives you a little more money on payday. It's not a lot, but every little bit helps. I was eligible for promotion to Spec 3. I had a lot of leave coming up, and I could use the extra money. I had been Soldier of the Month. Oh, that reminds me. After Colonel Hummel awarded me my three-day pass and a $15 check, I sensed that he softened a bit. He always maintained this tough facade most of the time. He was an infantry guy. But I sensed a good guy underneath that facade. One day I got off work early in the afternoon. I went to Colonel Hummel's office and told the orderly that I needed to see the colonel. What's your problem, Hummel asked. Well, Colonel, I've heard a rumor that you think you're a pretty good ping pong player. He looked at me for a long time. I bet I can kick your ass, he said. He opened his desk drawer and took out two paddles and a ball. Take these down to the ping-pong room, I'll be down in a minute. He was good, but I was better. After three games, he gave up. But whenever I saw him after that, he always had a tiny smile for me. So, I'd been Soldier of the Month, got high marks from all the non-coms for my teaching ability, and everything indicated that I'd get promoted when my time came up. But Hadley decided not to. When I learned about it, I went up to him and asked why. He said, Larry's been in the Army two months longer than you have, and he's up for promotion too, as if that answered my question. What's that got to do with anything? Well, you'd both have the same time in grade for your next promotion, he said. Next promotion? He's going back to Cincinnati in a couple of months, and I'm sure not making the Army a career. Well, I didn't think it would be fair to him. I'm the only soldier of the month you've ever had. I yelled at him. The confrontation was too much for him, so instead of being promoted to Spec 3, Hadley busted me back to Private E2 and transferred me out of the Management Engineering Division. I was pissed off, and I wrote a report which I bucked up the line. Not that it mattered, but at least I got it off my chest. I never did any work in the new section I was transferred to. I was pretty much on leave from the time I was transferred until I left Stuttgart. Now, this has nothing to do with our Cold War, but something I discovered about myself in the Army was that I had an interest in the arts and culture. I started reading when I was in the Army. In Baltimore, I went to Baltimore Symphony Orchestra concerts. In Washington, I'd gone to the National Gallery where I fell in love with painting, especially Dali and to a recital by the Contralto Risa Stevens, and a concert of Russian liturgical music at the National Cathedral. On my first trip in Germany, I already said that I went to see Tosca at the Vienna State Opera, but in Stuttgart I saw two performances of de Meistersinger. I went to an Andrei Segovia recital. I went to La Boheme when I went back to Vienna. I saw a production of Aida outdoors at the Baths of Caracalla in Rome, That stage was so deep that it was raked at an angle so you could see the back of it from the audience. Elephants and camels looked like props. Of course, I went to the Louvre when I was in Paris. I saw My Fair Lady and Bells Are Ringing on the West End in London and topped that off with a -a once-in-a-lifetime thrill. I decided to go to the Wagner Festspielhaus in Bayreuth for a performance of Parsifal. I don't know why, but I took my tuxedo to Germany with me. I wore it once at Bayreuth. I booked my ticket for Parsifal and drove to Bayreuth the night before. Until you've done this, you can't imagine what it would be like. The performance began in the afternoon. It was a gorgeous sunny day so you could roam the grounds between acts. There were also meal breaks between acts. This opera literally lasted all day and into the night. You needed the brakes, though, not just to grab a snack, but because when Wagner built his opera house, he was concerned about the acoustics and didn't want cloth upholstery to absorb the sound. So the seats were unupholstered and uncomfortable, to say the least. Your butt went to sleep while the music soared. But nevertheless, it was glorious. Something you never forget. I always tell everyone that I traveled back to the States on the same ship Elvis Presley came over to Germany on. It's not true, but it makes a good story. But his ship did arrive right before mine left. He arrived on the Randall. I left on the Butner. This time there were no dependents to play the drums for. I gained 20 pounds at Wallace Barracks. I never missed a meal. The only thing I ate on the USNS Butner was maybe a dozen saltine crackers. The entire ten days we were at sea, I puked. When I arrived at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, I weighed what I weighed before I went into the Army. I drove my little black Dauphine back to Delaware, Ohio, and kissed the Army goodbye. I'm Chris Wallace.